0: Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the major arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, To discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Before we get into the meat of today's episode, I have a very exciting announcement to share. I wanted y'all to be the first to know. Starting November 4th on the Scorpio new moon, I am officially repotting tarot for the end of times, and I'm giving it a new home at Snakeskin Tarot. Snakeskin Tarot is a rest stop at the crossroads. A space where I get to offer divination services and other forms of energetic nourishment for clients who are navigating seasons of change and integration. You can follow Snakeskin Tarot on Instagram at snakeskin.tarot, where you'll continue to see posts about tarot for the end of times, along with other exciting goodies that I'll be rolling out in the coming weeks. I believe that spiritual wellness is an integral part of our personal and collective liberation. And I'm really looking forward to talking about things like energetic hygiene, befriending plant allies, spiritual somatics, and other practices or concepts that have supported me along my own journey. I'll also be sharing new content that offers a more well-rounded glimpse into who I am as a spiritual care practitioner. And my hope is that Snakeskin Tarot can inspire you to get rooted in your spiritual and energetic self-care practices. It'll also be a container where we can interact more directly via DMs and will generally be a space where we can stay connected in between episodes. I'll continue to stay active on my art slash personal account at sarah.t.cargill, formally at she Is Not a Virgo. if you want to keep up with my art shenanigans and stay connected with me as a, as a regular-ass human. As always, I'll leave all links in the show notes so you can check out my new services and get to know who I am as a spiritual care practitioner beyond the container of Tarot for the End of Time. Snakeskin Tarot is truly a manifestation of what we've created here together, and so I thank you, humbly and sincerely, for taking part in this magic with me. Alright, without further ado, it is story time. Bit of a content warning, Um, there's going to be brief mention of substances, specifically cannabis, nothing super graphic or detailed or anything like that, but there is a brief mention of it um, throughout the first half of this this episode. Okay, so if it's available to you in this moment, I recommend that you fix yourself a cup of something warm and maybe light a candle to greet our guest for the evening. Miss Reaper herself, well, (laughs) she has arrived. We arrived at the bottom of the valley in an empty parking lot, just on the heels of blue hour. The curtain of night had already draped over the desert, leaving towering silhouettes that contoured natural boundaries and viable paths for meandering. Awe-stricken by the etheric hush that permeated the atmosphere, I stretched damn near half my body out the passenger seat window, hoping to be baptized by the quiet i'm glad we stopped here it was it was worth the drive i remarked adjusting my volume to a whisper as i reached my arm backward towards the driver's seat i hear a click of a lighter and feel a slender cone slip between my fingertips dry and smooth i bring the joint to my lips and tilt my head back as i take a languid drag watching the cherry glow a fiery orange against the glimmering night sky. I exhale slowly and a curl of gray smoke spirals upward, announcing my arrival and inviting benevolent spirits to join in on the rotation. A dry wind picks up and the tip of the joint brightens. Hmm. Offering received. I slide back into the passenger seat and glance into the rearview mirror. No cars in sight. We're good to go. In a single motion, I pass the joint back to her and reach toward the back seat to grab a lumpy brown paper bag. I slip on my tennis shoes and reshuffle the contents of my backpack to make some space. I tuck away the lumpy brown paper bag in the empty pocket between a canteen and an extra sweater. One can never be too prepared in the desert. She opens the driver's seat door, takes one more drag and extinguishes the joint on the concrete, then pops open a small plastic tube to stow it away for safekeeping. Here, you might need this later, she says, as she zips open the outer pocket of my backpack. I don't fight her on it. I tighten my laces, unlock the front door, and restate the parameters. Staring fiercely into the desert plain, I squeeze her palm and remind her. Okay, so if I'm not back in 90 minutes, turn your car to face south and turn my headlights on, she finishes. I nod in satisfaction and continue. And if I'm not back, In two hours, please get help. She nods and I unlock the passenger seat door, grab my backpack and hop out of the car, looking back to offer a reassuring smile. Feeling the window of bravery begin to shut, I pick up the pace and close the door behind me. And I'm on my way. Following the light of the waning moon, I listen for critters and creatures that stir in the brush. The crunch of small pebbles and the occasional snap of a twig booms in juxtaposition against the low murmur of nocturnal activity, and I grow increasingly self-conscious of all the noise that I'm making. I know I'm not the only one who's listening, that I'm being listened to. I adjust my gait to dampen the noise. After what seems like about an hour of meandering, I I pause to orient to my new surroundings and check the time. To my utter surprise, (laughs) it had only been 10 fucking minutes. I let out a snort and throw my hands up in disbelief. But then I look over my shoulder to gauge my distance from the parking lot and discover that, well, shit, it's long gone. My heartbeat quickens as I attempt to resolve low-grade cognitive dissonance while tracking my steps in the middle of the Mojave Desert. I make note of the large cluster of cacti a few feet ahead and scan the scene for other landmarks. Hmm few Joshua trees peppered across the landscape and, uh, not much else to help me find my way back. I remove my backpack and turn on the flashlight on my phone to scour the field for materials, returning to my rest stop with an armful of sticks, stones, and bones. Dust flies as I dump my collection onto scorched earth and I crouch to arrange the found materials into a large sigil, demarcating the land with a symbol for protection, activating a portal between the parking lot and wherever it is that I'm headed. I close with a psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Armed with some groundedness, I gather my belongings, turn off my flashlight, and check the time once more. It's been about 45 minutes. It's been 45 minutes. Panic rapidly swells in my chest. But then, just as quickly, it dissipates, truncated by a memory, possibly my own, but also possibly not I'm reminded of the tenants of queered temporalities, of black time travel. Yes, this, this is evidence of a thinning veil, of warping temporalities, a switch in the tracks, a, a queering of timelines. I am being rerouted. Yes, this. This is the perforation. I reckon I must be close. Though I'm unsure of what exactly to look for. I steady my breath and I wait for a signal. Another breeze comes in and reorients the direction of my gaze. I resolve in that moment to stop checking the time and allow myself to be led. More moments pass and the moonlight shifts and the the landscape begins to look... hmm, dangerously uniform i look up to find the moon on the opposite end of the sky and i begin to feel that familiar panic fill my chest and bubble in my throat again the moon just well it just doesn't move that fast my heartbeat grows louder in my ears and i am officially fucking scared Time to make an executive decision because, bitch, I exclaim, I am not going to fucking die today. (laughs) I let my proclamation ring in the air. I can't shake the feeling that someone is listening. And I secretly hope that someone is. I revive my courage and resolve to take 50 more steps forward. Yes, 50. Okay, we can do that. Counting down to the rhythm of each step, I begin to notice a faint syncopation. Something else, someone else, maybe, is moving. Rhythmically. With me. The faint noise grows as I approach the edge of a hill where the valley dips down further towards the center of the earth. The syncopation grows louder as I approach. 41. 42. Curiosity propels me until I come to an abrupt stop at the edge of a sharp slope. 50. I peer over the edge to locate the sound source a large black flag emblazoned with a white rose, rhythmically billowing against the wind. Scanning the area for a way down, I peer behind a colossal statuesque cactus to find an opening to a plunging path, tricky and narrow. The wind picks up, nudging me forward, and I refasten my shoelaces and begin to descend. I arrive in the pit of the valley, dusty and exhausted, but alive. The air here is... Noticeably still. So much so that even the tiniest of sounds ricochets and scuttles across the land. I pat myself down and take in my new surroundings, adjusting to the new aural landscape. I pick up on a distant crackling, the familiar sound of an open fire, and the gentle nickering of a horse. Moving towards the sound source, I cover my mouth with my sweater to muffle labored breathing as I make my way through a labyrinthian path of stone and desert weeds. The volume of the soundscape intensifies as I turn a corner around a colossal boulder. I travel around its perimeter and am suddenly greeted by the inviting glow of a roaring fire and a tall, stately black silhouette equal parts regal and terrifying. On the opposite end of the campfire, a full suit of medieval armor rests on a flat stone, gleaming in the light of the pyre. Miss Reaper has actually slipped into something more comfortable, donning a luscious black velvet cloak and standing beside her alabaster steed, methodically grooming its coat with a stiff dry brush. Though she remains silent with her back turned to me, I sense that my presence has already been noted. She continues to tend to her beloved companion without a word. I unload my backpack to recover my lumpy brown paper bag and uh, that joint. Knowing better than to approach empty-handed, I slowly emerge from the shadows, clear my throat, and sheepishly announce my arrival. Hey, Miss Reaper, (laughs) I know that you know why I'm here. I have something to give to you. Do I have permission to approach? Remaining silent with her back still turned, she drops the grooming brush into one of her sleeves and ties her horse's reins to the trunk of a sturdy Joshua tree. She wordlessly gestures towards an available seat adjacent to her. I take my seat, smoothing my hair and patting my body to shake off the debris I've collected along the way awkwardly filling the silence with busy hands as I wait for her to approach me. She glides around the perimeter of the campfire to shorten the distance between us. Her stature stretches skyward and I am reminded of the, the awe that death can inspire. She takes her seat beside me and I feel a coolness radiate from her, raising the hair on the back of my neck to stick out like cactus needles. She turns to face me, revealing a stark skeletal countenance with a white glow that rivaled the moon. She stretches her arm out and her sleeves pull back, revealing bony, elegant fingers that flicker in swift, decisive movements. I gently place the joint in her outstretched palm and she promptly sticks its tip into the pyre to reignite it. She places it between her teeth and curls of smoke lace through and around her ribcage as she stretches her arms out again to receive my brown paper bag. Her fingers flicker again, gesticulating a come-hither motion as if to say, come on, let's see it. I place my bag on the ground and she gets right to work. Without hesitation, she opens the bag and reaches to the very bottom to pull out its contents. Empty glass jars from seventy day candles, shards of hardened, melted wax flecked with burnt remnants of roots and herbs, expired petition papers, and a few photos I was itching to put away for good. Her movements begin to slow down and soften as she sorts through the magical refuse, gingerly separating the burnables from the non-burnables. She pauses, tenderly traces her fingers along each item, then gazes directly at me, expectant. Slightly startled, but Moved by the shift in her affect, I begin to recount the stories and prayers that each item held, unhooking each memory from my heart and releasing them with equal parts tears and laughter. Being a generous witness, she glides her icy index finger across my face and rakes that tear-soaked finger across my forehead, anointing me with my own holy water. At long last, begin to settle into a comfortable silence miss reaper rises from her seat to feed the fire silently instructing me to put the burnables back into the paper bag she grabs a shovel to rearrange the logs aerating the pyre to ensure a strong steady burn she carves a small pocket between two burning logs turns to face me, and points at my little brown bag. I nod to indicate understanding and make my way over to the fire as she gathers the sooty seven-day candle containers, tucking them in the seemingly bottomless pit of her sleeve. I lower myself into a squat and thrust my bag in, Tears well and flow with a kind of freedom I've never known, cleansing me from the inside out, clearing the way. I then feel a surge of energy surge through me from the bottom up, and a guttural wail pours out through every orifice. And then, emptied, feeling freer than I've ever felt. I fall backwards and sense a coolness wrap around from behind. I toss my head back to find the reaper herself, sitting with me between her knees, enveloping me with her velvet cloak. I lean into her and allow myself to just be held. The fire eventually reduces to a smolder and I begin to sense that it's time for us to transition. I get up drink some water, and put on my sweater for the journey back to the parking lot. I watch the reaper toss a handful of dirt into the glowing remains and untie her steed from the Joshua tree. She loads up swiftly and hoists herself onto the horse as she waits for me to gather myself. Thank you, I whisper, and the reaper nods in acknowledgment. She pauses to scan the landscape, points to the horizon, and from a distance over yonder, I make out a familiar set of headlights, beaming across the valley. I look back to thank her once more, but she had already disappeared into the night. The Grim Reaper is, in my opinion, (laughs) the most underappreciated and misunderstood care worker among the archetypes. The Plutonian queen of decomposition, cleansing fires, and rites of passage, she is an unflinching witness to the struggles and secrets that we work so hard to deny and run from. But Miss Reaper knows the price that comes with hiding from ourselves. Truly. Like the millions of care workers who hold it down across the globe, we don't give her enough credit for what she does for us. For what she does to sustain the continuity of life. I mean, just look at how the the International Astronomical Union did Pluto dirty by demoting the celestial body from quote official planet status to something else. It's rude, but the colonial impulse to neatly and definitively categorize something like the galaxy is no match for the sense of self-knowing that fixed water energy can bring into the scene. Pluto, quite simply, doesn't give one figgy ass a fuck about your categories. The death card depicts a skeletal figure in a full suit of metal armor, riding a white steed. The figure is holding up a black flag ornamented with a large, white, five-petal rose in the center. Four figures of varying genders, ages, and socioeconomic statuses fall at the feet of the white horse, alluding to the inescapable nature of the primordial force that is death. In the background, there is an image of a setting sun, foreshadowing and ending. A sailboat glides along the surface of a river, alluding to the river Styx, the Greek deity that separates the earthly realm from the underworld. In ancient Greek mythology, Nyx, the daughter of chaos and goddess, or personification of night, procreates with Erebus, the god of darkness, and gives birth to Thanatos, the god of death death is therefore the grandchild of change the death card indicates an opportunity to take your power back by looking change square in the eye and telling her to fucking bring it governed by the energetic signature of scorpio and the planet pluto this card insists that we go deep or go home Plutonian energy demands that we take responsibility for our healing by naming the thing that keeps your tongue tied and your heart ensnared in a web of unspoken truths. The archetypal energy of this card activates our purging reflexes. And the gag is... See what I did there? (laughs) By purging all of the things we think keeps us safe, the things that keep us unharmed but small, we give ourselves a fighting chance to become again. The traditional ruler of Scorpio is Mars, and we see the elements of Martian energy come through in the death card. Whether you call her the Grim Reaper or the hundreds of other names that she goes by, the skeletal figure that we see in this card is the messenger of death the personification of the Great Dissolving. She wears a full suit of black metal armor, which, you know, beyond it being fucking badass, is Martian energy embodied. Now, parenthetically, I've received a few inquiries about court cards from y'all, so, so I'll take this opportunity to say a bit about that here. In the realm of court cards, knights are categorically associated with the element of air, and therefore, they are the designated messengers of the bunch. So, knowing this, we can see how that symbolic structure can also be applied to the death card. Miss Reaper, she is, more or less, a messenger. Now, if you are a 30-something like me (laughs) and watched MTV as a kid, you may be familiar with the made-for-TV remake of the opera by Bizet called Carmen, a hip opera starring Mackay Pfeiffer and none other than Miss Carter herself, (laughs) Beyoncé. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and lie to y'all about the actual acting in this movie, But nonetheless, nonetheless, it is iconic, particularly for 90s R&B babies, uh, 90s R&B and hip-hop babies, all-star cast. If you haven't seen it, watch it. (laughs) Anyway, there is a foreboding scene in this movie where Beyonce's character, Carmen, goes to, (laughs) goes to Wyclef Jean for a tarot reading, and... Despite her insistent protest, he keeps pulling the death card on her. (laughs) And of course, Carmen dies and the film comes to a tragic close. (laughs) I bring this up to underscore two points. First, let me be plain about this. The death card is not an actual omen for actual death. For the most part. So let, let's just put that to bed. I would say like 99% of the time, for me anyway, the death card does not predict death. However, despite its esoteric inaccuracy, this scene in Carmen does well in highlighting how the energy of the death card operates. Which brings me to my second point. As the warrior messenger, the figure in the death card is tasked with delivering the message of change. Within the context of the court cards, in terms of affect and feeling tone, knights embody this sense of of urgency that other court cards don't necessarily embody. So much like the knights of the tarot deck, the archetype depicted in the death card takes their job very, very seriously, and there's also an undercurrent of urgency there. Miss Reaper has one job and one job only, and that is to inform you that change is a coming. Now, for all intents and purposes, this card is governed by the element of water. So we're dealing with feminine receptive energy here. This means that the way that we experience the death card is largely determined by our level of receptivity and acceptance, not necessarily by the message in and of itself. I love the imagery of the Grim Reaper as a knight on horseback. It's, it's just such a rich metaphor, so let's linger here a bit longer. The Reaper is a courageous archetype. It takes courage to say the hard thing that needs to be said to initiate change or to dead an issue. It takes courage to deliver news to those who may not be ready to hear it. It takes courage to hold yourself accountable to the change that you know is necessary to implement. Now, courage, by definition involves acknowledging and integrating your vulnerabilities. Despite the energy that she delivers, and she certainly delivers, Miss Reaper is actually quite vulnerable under that suit. Her vulnerability, just like the vulnerability that comes with your messy, fleshy humanness, is exactly the thing that makes her so courageous. Okay, so... You know, not to, not to Brene Brown y'all with all of this, but let's talk about vulnerability. It's an important consideration when working with this card. The figure in this card is suited up in what appears to be a medieval panoply or a full suit of head to toe metal armor. Metal is a protective material that can be fashioned to keep soft human bodies or vulnerable skeletons safe in the heat of battle. Metal is also a reflective material that can be used to deflect energetic or psychic attacks to keep our spirits and psyches safe. Now, Miss Reaper placed a special order on that suit. She opted for an all-black ensemble, and you know, not without reason. Black is a protective color, In the same way that many spiritual care workers and practitioners wear all white to deflect unwanted energy when working with the dead, silver, as a metal, does a great job of deflecting unwanted energy. However, much like the scorpion, black is a color that allows Miss Reaper to go on about her business undetected, and that, dear listeners, is a form of protection too, moving in silence moving quietly. We now know that the zodiac sign associated with the death card is Scorpio, but the tiny but mighty scorpion is not the only creature that embodies scorpionic energy. Scorpio energy takes on multiple forms in esoteric symbolism, including the phoenix, the eagle, and the snake. For the purposes of this episode, I'd like to zero in on the snake, As discussed in the Magician episode, the snake is a symbol of transformation, transmutation, and rebirth. Now about two to four times a year, so maybe once per season, snakes go through a process called ectasis, or the routine shedding of its skin. This process is absolutely vital for the health of the snake as it helps them shed parasites and continue to grow when their skin can no longer contain the size of their growing bodies. You see, snake skin doesn't expand congruently with a growing snake body. While this process is a necessary part to maintaining their overall wellness, it's also a time when snakes are in their most vulnerable state. As their old skin begins to peel away from its body, their bodies produce this grayish-bluish lubricant that helps them slide out of that old suit. But there is a period during that transition when the fluid collects around the snake's eyes and causes the snake to temporarily lose its sight, leaving them pretty vulnerable to predators. Transformation is as necessary as it is risky. A premature tear in the skin can lead to gnarly infections that often lead to serious life-threatening complications. But the Death Card is here to teach us that sometimes the most profound changes will don the mask of your worst fear. I hope that at this point in the podcast we've come to a general understanding that these archetypes are not stand-alone figures. They have partners and counterparts and foils and siblings. And so we got to take those relationships into consideration when we learn about them. Because esoteric relationships are often articulated through opposites, let's bring additional context to the death card by way of the Taurus-Scorpio axis. Let's revisit the Empress. If we go back to episode 5, you'll recall that the Empress is ruled by the sign of Taurus. I'll let you go back and replay that episode at your leisure, but in essence, the Empress embodies the richness, the the overflow, the fecundity of earthly life. She is literally and figuratively fertile and has no trouble caring for herself and her loved ones through the abundance that she generates. That card is about generating life-sustaining sustenance with ease. But a card like that needs balance, a foil character to anchor growth in equanimity. And so the death card comes in to draw a definitive boundary between abundance and overgrowth. Now, I think that the white rose on the black flag actually alludes to the death card's connection with the empress. What these two archetypes have in common, the link that draws these two together as siblings, is that they have a vested interest in perpetuating the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. As the ruler of the astrological second house, Taurus is connected to the material resources we gather to create a sense of security and safety in our lives. However, as the ruler of the astrological eighth house, Scorpio, and by extension the death card, asks us to identify the resources we are willing to give up in order to fuel something bigger, our resurrection. This is the core of their familial tie the empress ripens and harvests the crop and Miss Reaper turns the compost. And so the death card insists that you confront a very scary question. What do you really want from this life? Would you be willing to release your attachment to the illusion of safety if it meant that you could cultivate a little bit more meaning in your life. The death card presents an opportunity for us to unravel, to take off the armor and the regalia, to become undone, offering a dark incubation space where we can transmute trash into nutrients. So, while they may appear to sit on opposing ends of the spectrum, in reality, the Empress and Miss Reaper work in tandem to perpetuate the cycle of life. They need each other in the way that sisters often do. There's a natural and I would even say necessary tension that the death card holds. It's, it's a character mark that undergirds the energetic signature of this card. For me, The word death in and of itself can spark a kind of friction and I see a similar kind of tension rise to the surface whenever this card appears in my client readings. This tension is amplified through symbolic and visual cues. The snake, for example, is a pretty contentious animal mascot that appears in many cosmologies as both a benevolent and malevolent animal spirit, taking on the role of the trickster and the sage. The black and white coloration of this card adds to this tension. Black and white imagery, similarly to mm, black and white thinking, has a polarizing effect, which in and of itself holds, again, a kind of tension. And so it's with this in mind that I'd like to explore the numerology of this card. The Death card is the 13th major arcana, and at least within my own cultural context, 13 is a hotly contested and energetically charged number. I'd like to pause here and say that when discussing numerology, or any kind of esoteric symbolism for that matter, I am working within a very specific cultural and historical context. Now, because humans are going to human, we can sometimes forget that our context, and by extension, the interpretations we apply to these ubiquitous symbols, is not universal. You know? And it's tempting to want to assign symbols with a fixed meaning or apply a rigid interpretive lens to these things because... You know at the end of the day we're just trying to decode what the universe or our, our spiritual team is trying to communicate with us but all this to say 13 is a controversial number but my cultural context is not universal so i'll do my very best to avoid assumptions and lean into some specificity the idea that the number 13 is an unlucky, taboo, or cursed number, is specific to, quote, Western cultures and also Christianity. Because the esoteric language of the writer waite smith tarot deck is heavily inspired by Judeo-Christian symbolism, this framework feels appropriate. So, the number 13 is often considered unlucky because of its association with unwanted guests. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, was the 13th guest at the Last Supper. And if you're unfamiliar with this tale, he basically rats Jesus out to the cops in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. Judas does this by disclosing Jesus's whereabouts and identifies him in a crowd by publicly calling him rabbi and kissing his feet, so quite literally planting the kiss of death. And that brings us to today, where according to the Stress Management Center and Phobia Institute in Asheville, North Carolina, in the United States, about 80% of hotels, commercial buildings, and hospitals and airports avoid constructing a 13th floor, room number, or gate number. Switching gears here. 13 is a pretty significant milestone. It marks the transition from childhood to teenager and is often celebrated as a rite of passage. It's a time when a lot of folks begin to individuate and when we begin to experience our muscles and bones stretch and tear to facilitate growth. It's also a time when a lot of us begin to engage with our interiority in more complex ways as our inner world stretches and tears to accommodate growth too. We begin to grapple with the hypocrisy embedded in the world around us and we have to learn to reconcile that cognitive dissonance. 13 is fucking tough! And while I certainly would not wish the curse of middle school onto anyone, I have to acknowledge that this, this very tension is exactly what initiates those crucial growth spurts. It's a time in our lives when so many of us begin to reckon with the reality that we are growing and that we are no longer who we once were. Interestingly enough, when we add the root numbers of one and three together, we get the number four, which is often considered to be a taboo number in East Asian cultures. In both Japanese and Chinese languages, the word for the number four sounds identical to the word for death. So when traveling to these parts of the world, you'll likely spot a missing fourth floor and a general avoidance of that number in public and private spaces. All this to say, the bold archetypal energy of the death card does not shy away from friction, tension, or controversy, and it encourages us to be receptive to what might occur if we let that tension do what it needs to do. Tension is often a catalyst for change, building up kinetic energy to nudge us towards the edge of our comfort zone so that we might pierce the membrane that keeps us contained in the shape of who we used to be. Tension makes real living possible, and the death card is about that life. The difference between fear and and excitement is whether or not we process that energetic surge that internal tension as a threat or as an opportunity if the death card appears upright in your spread it is the perfect time to address whatever tension you've been avoiding and to hold yourself accountable to implementing the changes that will make you feel the most alive it's a time to say Yes, to reinvention, endings, and transformation. So if you find yourself cornered between a rock and a hard place, do like the snakes do and rub your little snoot against that rough surface, create an opening, and slip out of that old skin. If the death card shows up in the reverse, it is time to get honest with yourself about how you might be crossing your own boundaries because Scorpio is a very boundaried sign or how you habitually give your power away to others and to consider the ways in which you might be contributing to your own stagnancy by dodging the inevitable. This energy prompts us to take stock of whatever it is that contributes to our fear of change and to get real about how we reinvest energy and resources into repetitive patterns that keep us stuck. Dear listener, please consider the plight of the undead. The double-edged sword of not being able to die. If the death card the upright position symbolizes nutrient-dense compost then this card in reverse for me symbolizes that moldy tupperware container stinking up your fridge winter is a coming and it's a great time to get in right relationship with this archetype as the days grow shorter in the coming months may you become reacquainted with the spirit of darkness, and let yourself be delighted by all the possibility that the void holds. Thank you for listening. We'll talk soon.